Welcome to Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing good, John. How are you today? I am doing pretty good. I am full of a leftover pizza and just a little bit of beer, so I'm having a pretty good evening. Uh, I trust that... Uh, I trust that the weather isn't too intense over there. I heard that it was downgraded from hurricane to tropical storm. Is that right? Yeah. So over here in New York, we were uh, in fear for our lives, uh, thanks to the media, about Hurricane Henry or Hurricane Henri, if that's uh, your predilection of pronunciation. Uh, but it was downgraded to a tropical storm. So just a lot of rain, a little bit of wind, uh, but otherwise we're all pretty safe and sound. I, like you, am fairly full with uh, some leftover uh, hot pizza uh, and wine instead of beer and uh, just looking forward to uh, chatting about a couple of films. Awesome. Sounds good. Um, and in the spirit of quippy, efficient uh, dialogue of the uh, of the genre that we're going to be talking about today, I'm just going to get straight to it. Today's theme is neo-noir. Um, this, there's not really a big secret here. There was a neo-noir collection that went up on Criterion, and we thought, especially given our previous episode on uh, regular old noir, that it would be uh, a fun, uh, apropos uh, choice uh, for us to sort of uh, dive into. And uh, Chris, do you want to give us a little bit of a a little bit more of a context for for neo noir, yeah, because uh, th- this was obviously my choice, just like noir was my choice way back when, in uh, the early days of this podcast. Um, it's no secret that I've always been a fan of noir, um, and as familiar as I am with the tropes and with a lot of the major releases of the um, film noir kind of set of the '40s and '50s, neo noir is something that I wasn't as well-versed in. Um, and one of the opportunities I thought was really interesting here is uh, in in our set, um, and I don't want to say it, it's the film Twitter set or, you know, that that group, but um, you always hear about a lot of the same films when you, you mention Neo Noir. Um, and most people tend to bring up films like Blade Runner, which is very much a new noir in its in its structure and its uh, and its framing. But I mean, no one thinks of it as a neo noir as much as they think of it as like a science fiction, you know, action thriller. Same thing with things like. Um, uh, another film that I love quite deeply, uh, Dark City, which is very much a weird kind of neo-noir, but, you know, f- based in, a t- in the tenets of another genre. So what I really loved about what Criterion did with their great selection of movies was they really picked um, neo-noir as it's really kind of defined. It's the new noir. It's it's still taking um, all of the tenets of noir, but updating it to modern times, not so much shooting it into other genres or other tropes. So it was real interesting to kind of see what do you do with that darkness? What do you do with that desperation? What do you do with those moral quandaries and those choices um, when you remove them from sort of the kind of conservative, clean-cut uh, social mores of the of the late 40s and 50s, that kind of post-war where, you know, we fought the big one and we won. What do you do when you take those same things and you put it in the context of like the 70s and the 80s where social mores are completely different and the wars that we had just recently fought were not as clear cut as maybe World War II was. Um, so it was some, it was a great chance to kind of look at noir in that context and for probably the first time really dive deep into the genre. One of the differences I, I know between us, John, is, um, 
You tend to do a lot more homework on these episodes than I do. And what I mean by that is if we're doing a uh, particular director, um, I'll watch the two that we are reviewing, of course, and maybe I'll watch one more. I maybe have some knowledge of a few others that I've seen in the past. You tend to really go whole hog and like, okay, I'm going to watch as many as I can, and I'm going to become as well-versed as, as possible. This is the first time that with a topic like this and because the criterion selection was so cool i really dug in and you know for better or for worse there were one or two that i really did not enjoy uh but i really started to dig in and start to kind of educate myself a little bit of some of the some of the staples of the neo-noir genre uh that at least uh criterion was offering so it was a good education for me to kind of become a little bit more versed in in uh what was out there and and what some of the the, the strengths and and weaknesses of the genre as people try to take it into the 70s and 80s and uh, beyond work. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned my my homework tendencies, uh, and and uh, and I'll be upfront because that's that's probably and God bless your form yeah. too. I, I I wish I was as I was uh, dedicated as you were in that aspect. Well, I, I mean, there's at least part of it that's me trying to like play catch up with your with your knowledge set uh, in, in that sense. Um, but also, I, I'm glad you mentioned it because the last couple episodes, I feel like I have kind of gotten away from that just a little bit. Like I haven't really been as sort of let's try and cover as much ground as possible. And this was the first time in a couple episodes where I got back to that, where I tried to watch as many of the, uh, as many of the films within the sort of scope of the episode as, as possible, even beyond the ones that we were covering. And yeah, there are, I, I think the two that we're going to cover today are probably some of the, like uh, two of the ones that I like the most. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I, I think there was only one really that I, uh, very distinctly of the ones that I watched, the one that I really, really didn't like, uh, which was the uh, the David Mamet one, uh, which I don't remember the name of. And Homicide. I'm not going to. Yeah, I'm not going to. Th- that one was um, uh, uh, interesting um, in, a, in a terrible kind of way. Um, but yeah, no, this was like for the most part, this was like a ton of fun, actually, to, to get into. And uh, yeah, why don't we... Uh, why don't we use that that fun high energy to to bring us into our first movie for the night? Sure. So the first one we're going to talk about is Robert Altman's 1973 film, The Long Goodbye. There's a long goodbye, and it happens every day when some passerby invites your eye to come her way. Okay, so there were a couple reasons why I picked The Long Goodbye. Um, it, to be fair, we were talking about this earlier. If I, if it wasn't for a couple of extenuating circumstances, I probably would have went with another film for my example of Near Noir. And I, I couldn't tell you what that film would be. But The Long Goodbye lent itself to this conversation for a couple of reasons. Um, when we talked about the heist uh, episode... Last time, uh, and you had picked Ocean's Eleven, one of the things that came up was how much you loved Elliot Gould and uh, your slight unfamiliarity with some of the other roles that Elliot Gould did. So I was like, oh, man, well, that makes it real easy. I'll pick The Long Goodbye because this is probably outside of maybe one or two other performances. This is my favorite Elliot Gould performance. I love Elliot Gould in this. Um, it does a couple of other things. There are a couple other connections. This is Elliot Gould and, um, Robert Altman doing Raymond Chandler, doing, um, 
my brain just turned off, uh, but doing Philip Marlowe. Uh, one of my favorite films of all time is The Big Sleep. One of my favorite actors of all time is Humphrey Bogart, uh, who famously portrayed Philip Marlowe in The Big Sleep, which was uh, co-written along with William Faulkner by Leigh Brackett. Uh, who also wrote the screenplay for The Long Goodbye. So a bunch of kind of great connections back to my past, back to our past conversations, um, to The Empire Strikes Back, as we will talk about with our next pick as well. Star Wars seems to run rampant through all of this as as well. But essentially, The Long Goodbye... Um, was one of Raymond Chandler's uh, later Philip Noir Marlowe mystery novels, and it's it's a it's a Philip Marlowe mystery. It is tough talking, gumshoe, private eye Philip Marlowe embroiled in a situation beyond his control. Um, but what's really interesting about the Long Goodbye, um, we'll, we'll talk about the specifics of the the plot, although. I don't know how necessary it is, but what it really does that I find interesting, um, and this is where I really find it fascinating as a neo-noir example, is it takes the persona and it takes the character who was made famous in the 40s and 50s, hard-boiled gumshoe detective with uh, always always has got a quick word, you know, um, a, a real wry writ, and it throws him into the 1970s. And what happens when... A person's kind of moral and social values um, from one generation gets thrown into the next generation. Um, and with the way this film kind of wends its way through its fairly convoluted plot, essentially what this is about is uh, Marlowe is at home and he gets a, a late night visit from his friend Terry, uh, Terry Lennox who may have had a, a pretty rough fight with his uh, wife and needs to get out of town because he's involved with some kind of bad type. So basically asks Marlo for a ride to the uh, Mexican border. He's going to go to Tijuana, hide out for a little while, cool off, and it'll be what it'll be. So Marlo, being the obliging guy that he is, drops him off. Um, and then finds out a couple days later that Terry Lennox is dead and uh, no one knows how he died or what happened. But it turns out that he had a suitcase. That suitcase may have had a couple hundred thousand dollars that belonged to a mob type person who wants that money back. Um, in the meantime, he gets embroiled with this writer uh, who is being held up in an asylum, maybe against his will. And in typical Raymond Chandler, Philip Marlowe fashion, all of these kind of tangles start to come together and unravel um, to provide a uh, weird kind of um, a, a weird kind of situation for Marlowe to find himself in uh, when you you take that story and move it to 1970s kind of California. I mean, so that that's really what it is. Um, we can talk about the plot and we can talk about um, I have some very particular thoughts about how this ties into film noir, um, especially with the moral quandaries and and the 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 time frame. But the first thing I wanted to ask you, John, was because you were coming off of a, hey, I really like Elliot Gould in Ocean's Eleven. How did Gould strike you in The Long Goodbye? So let's start there with your your thoughts of him as a performer in another film and then kind of dive into your thoughts on the movie as a whole. I mean, the like we're, we're not necessarily getting like uh, like like open shirted, hairy chested uh, uh, Elliot Gould from some like I don't remember 
there's any every so often on Twitter, there's that picture of him and oh, I don't remember who he was married to, but just like one of the most like he was married to Barbara Streisand. I don't know if it's that. That's <laughs> what it is. That's that. That's okay. probably what it is. Um, so we, we're not getting like the gloriously beautiful Elliot Gould, but he's like eminently compelling. Like he's um, he, he as the down and out sort of like he's never sort of a high status character. Like he lives in a terrible apartment and people comment on the shittiness of his apartment. His his only friend is a cat who really doesn't uh, or well his his best friend is a cat who is uh basically doesn't tr- uh, respect him at all uh he's uh, uh <laughs> he, he doesn't even seem to, but he, he kind of is down but never seems to be that interested like he lives uh, like across from these uh naked ladies doing yoga all the time and they seem to like him and but he doesn't seem to be all that interested in the fact that there's naked ladies doing yoga he's just like yeah hey how's it going um but he's but even that sort of like i guess more not like hyper uh sad or thing but just more just like kind of bummed out vibe most of the time uh he's still like he's still great to watch um and i think one of the things that uh and, and i think that 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 the vibe that he gets along with sort of the 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 setting uh of being in california with the 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 running with the celebrity writer and the and the and in the asylum that he gets locked into um that that to me sort of some of those threads and stylistic choices which i think might also come down to like this being a robert altman movie as well kind of feels like the that that's where i find the the neo part of the neo-noir um for for the the genre because and of course having i think there's a great pick for this episode because um he because this is of course you know raymond chandler and a, a very direct connection to the the author of the person who wrote all these you know all the all the classic noirs um and so in that case i think it was a is a it was a great selection but then updating sort of some of the 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 cultural milieu of some of that stuff where it feels it feels more naturalistic i guess or i guess it feels closer to something that i can identify with and i don't have to stretch as hard with uh, as far as with some of the some of the classic noirs to be like okay this is why this is like so it doesn't have someone doesn't have to sit me down like they do with Jane Austen for example and explain to me wh- how this all works and why I should care i just instinctively can go oh okay this this hemingway type author is um potentially being manipulated by some california quack type dude and i, I i've seen enough you know nexium documentaries or whatever to be able to understand like okay i think i understand how this works and um, let's and- and, and, and let's stop here for just a second to draw another parallel back to our previous episode. That Hemingway-like character is played by Sterling Hayden, Absolutely. who was the star of The Asphalt Jungle. And uh, like The Asphalt Jungle, where he is – you can't take your eyes off of him when he's on the screen. Uh, he is a he is a rampaging fire of personality whenever he is on screen in this film as well. Uh, and it just makes me love him even more. <laughs> Thank you so much for reminding me of that because the, the thing we talked about in the last episode with sterling hayden was that he just looked like a brick that had a soul like he looked like a brick faced soul and uh here he's not just like i mean i'm sure that the however many years in between movies you know (laughs) changes people as well but like he's 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 the you know the big bearded jovial over the top uh kind of blowhard um delight like delightfully so but like he's the 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 (laughs) I'm not sure if he always had that range or if this was just a later years kind of thing, but I was like, wow, he is way more like, even though he's 
theoretically not necessarily a great person i like him i'm way more like drawn to him in this movie than i was to the other one where i was just like i guess he's my hero but like uh, i don't want to go near him <laughs> well that's an interesting thing about about the film as well and, and and uh talking about kind of the tenets you were kind of drawing from well this is the neo in the noir um the, the thing to always kind of come back to with, with these films is, right, so what is noir? Noir isn't always mystery. So while, like, the Chandler films like um, uh, Farewell, My Lovely and uh, The Big Sleep in the 40s and 50s um, were – could – could also be noirs, and both of them were. Um, noir isn't always mystery, just like heist films aren't always crime films, like like we talked about before. And what what I love about um, Hayden here as the author is there's for me there's a weird parallel of him as that big brick with a soul that you talk about in the asphalt jungle. I think that's the perfect way to describe it here. It's almost like 20 years later in the chaos of the seventies. And it is very much an Altman-esque chaos with the overlapping dialogue and, and, and the way that that that's working here is almost like, not to say it's the same character. It certainly is not, but here is Sterling Hayden. Here is that brick with a soul. Here's what happens when they break. Because he's ultimately he he's broken in this movie, and and it, it shows that all those sweeping grand, just like Hemingway, all those sweeping grand Hemingway esque gestures hide a truly broken person. You see how broken he is by the end of this movie. It's one of the things that I really love about this film is that it it does things with noir even outside of the story. It takes characters and it takes personas from your past and from these films that were that that were built up. It takes Hayden's kind of character that he played throughout the 50s. And it shows you what happens when that character breaks. It takes Marlowe, who is the tough guy with the quippy response, which is a great kind of connection we'll talk about when we talk about our next film in terms of dialogue. Like the great thing about Chandler's writing and the great thing about Marlowe is Marlowe's always got a snappy comeback. He's always got a real interesting way of speaking. And Gould does some crazy things with that way of speaking in this movie. He's always mumbling to himself. He's always talking to himself, and I find it hilarious. Um, but, you know, this movie also takes... Marlowe, the persona of Marlowe, the persona of the tough guys, 50 noir. And I would argue, we'll talk about the ending later, breaks him, breaks him by the end of the film. Um, so it, it is distinctly Altman, but it's distinctly Altman um, kind of playing with the conventions of noir and then saying, well, you know what? You want me to do like a modern noir? Fine. I'm going to do it, but I'm going to I'm going to make people angry. Like if this was done now with a character back then as beloved as Marlowe was, he was what, like one of the most, probably the most famous American detective um, to do what he does with Marlowe in this film. If like, if, if there is a compliment in modern times, the social media fan base would have flamed you know, Altman alive for, you know, that's not my Philip Marlowe. He doesn't do that. And this is what he does. And, you know, he probably wouldn't look like Elliot Gould either. He's not going to look like this curly haired kind of Jewish looking guy. That's crazy. Um, I love that Altman plays with that. I love that Altman kind of plays with expectations 
just like some modern filmmakers do and 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 twist them to that extent here and i think that's readily apparent with uh, hayden's character i went off on a crazy tangent but i wanted to bring it back to hayden's character because i did love him so much in this movie and it made me think about how he was used in the asphalt jungle and other movies and how he played here which i i really enjoyed it for sure and if there's someone who i think works in this movie but for the opposite reasons of what you did is the uh is the person running the the psych ward um i don't remember his name uh but the guy who is trying to basically extort money out of sterling hayden dr veringer um, yeah dr veringer there we go. Uh, I know him primarily as the Nazi from the Blues Brothers, uh, yes. and so when I saw him on screen, I was like, "Oh, instantly, that's the ba- that's a bad guy." If he's not the when bad guy, he is face, a bad guy. He is a bad person. Yeah, you, know you just right see away. it, and you go like, "That is." I just instinctively know that he's somehow terrible, and I hope that Henry Gibson was a nice person and was treated uh, nicely uh, in response. But uh, he just so compelling, or just so obviously projects. Uh, uh, terribleness that I saw him and was like, oh, well, obviously he's an antagonist here. Um, I wanted to, uh, something that occurred to me, and this couldn't have been in the, this couldn't have been in the, in the intent of the movie. Well, it couldn't have been in the modern conception of like, w- w- this couldn't have been thought of in the way that I'm thinking of it. There could be a different way that they're talking about it. And this maybe speaks to what you were talking about in terms of that's not my Philip Marlowe, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But something that it occurs to me, I was like, when I was watching, I was like, this is a movie where Philip Marlowe is told that his friend Terry Lennox killed his wife. And he spends the whole movie being like, absolutely not. You're wrong. You're, you're a piece of shit. He's defiant about it. And we, um, and always, since all we have to go on is his word that this is the case, we just sort of trust that, well, he knows what he's talking about. He's the protagonist, right? Um, and then at the end of the, like, and spoiler alert for this movie, uh, when you get to the end, it turns out that uh, Terry absolutely killed his wife um, and that uh, Philip Marlowe was completely wrong. And the, the, the cops... Um, though we are no friend to the cops in this movie, uh, they, they had it right the whole time. Um, and this movie's, uh, and to me that feels like, I feel like that vibe has a weirdly compelling, uh, is weirdly compelling in the year of our Lord 2021, where just like, you know, we're a couple years removed from just constant re- revelations of people being awful all the time. And the dam bursting on like, the stories of like people we thought were cool uh, and people we thought we liked just turning out to be in some ways that we were not aware of just horrible pieces of shit. And I feel like that thread in the movie actually, I think that part of the movie actually plays uh, shockingly well in a way that I wasn't looking for a plan. And it's not part of the movie. I just, that was, that was a weird takeaway from me. I was like, Oh wow, this movie is about how he, is is in denial like this oh this guy was always good to me therefore he couldn't have killed his wife i was like that's that's i thought that was wild that was wild and that's where i mean it's it's a perfect segue into why i think this is such a great neo-noir because that ending is the key to what makes this as effective as it is and it's important to note uh what happens at the end in this movie is not what happens at the end in the book uh, so let's let's talk about what happens at the end of this movie. At the end of the movie, um, Marlowe realizes that Terry Lennox is still alive, uh, that he, uh, and um, 
he is having an affair with uh, the writer's wife. Uh, kind of other spoiler, but there's a there's a just a tremendous scene. Um, so Sterling Hayden's uh, writer character uh, Roger Wade. I'm, I'm, I'm looking it up now. Um, his he he kills himself at the end of the movie. He kind of walks off into the ocean in a very kind of manly way, and he kills himself. And it's such a it's such an incredible scene in the movie where the wife is running out and Marlo's running out to try and save him, but the surf is too tough and they, they, they come back. So it's such a great moment. And it's after that moment that Marlo realizes, holy crap, things are not like he expected them to be. Things are not like he expected them to be. And as they would be if it were still the 50s and it were still that kind of a world where noir was living and breathing that way. Um, and so what winds up happening is he figures out that Lennox faked his own death, uh, stole all the money, wound up having to give it back, but did it all because he's having an affair with uh, Roger Wade's wife. So Marlowe takes a trip down to Mexico and confronts Lennox. Lennox had tried to pay him off with like $5,000. There's a great couple of sequences with a $5,000 bill, one of which includes an uncredited Arnold Schwarzenegger in one of his earliest roles, where he doesn't speak, but does have um, an opportunity to take off all of his clothes <laughs> in a really bizarre scene. Um, yeah, that one was weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Marlo confronts Lennox, who basically admits to everything. And uh, this is where I, I think it becomes brilliant. Marlo kills Lennox, just shoots him and walks away. And as he's walking away down the street in Mexico, um, Roger Wade's wife, Eileen Wade, uh, drives past him and sees him. And he takes out a little harmonica that he'd gotten earlier, starts to play the harmonica. And that's how the film ends. Uh, and man, th that is, it is such a blow. It is such a blow. Again, this is not, it, this is not the Marlowe that we knew. This is not the Marlowe for those people in the seventies who knew Raymond Chandler's works and knew all the earlier Philip Noir Marlowe, uh, adaptations. This is not what Marlowe does. Marlowe doesn't just shoot someone down in cold blood. He is ultimately a good person. And what I love about that ending and what I think really speaks to, you know, Altman's um, kind of twisting of the noir tropes, tropes is this is what makes it a true noir. A, a true noir really takes your protagonist and ruins them at the end. And the only way to ruin Marlowe is to, you know, shock him out of his 50s slumber that he had been in and have him do something that completely ties him into the reality of the current time of the 70s, which is a chaotic time where morals are confused and chaotic and you don't know what to do. And and his his shooting of Lennox to me is that kind of is is the nail in the coffin of the 50s. It's the nail in the coffin of what we think, you know, the the Marlowe character is. And it's just, it's just brilliant. It is such a great ending. Um, I can forgive it all. It's other little weird kind of asides that maybe I didn't always hundred percent agree with, but it, it, it all comes together in that killer of an ending for me. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I don't have anything to add to that except that I, yeah, hundred percent agree. The ending, the ending rules in the way that like it's, it's, <laughs> I don't have the necessary built-in attachment to it, so it may not feel like the betrayal for me. But I think to your like, I think the the point is is 
the point that this is the final breaking ruining point where um this person who has been trying to live in one set of in one time uh, in one era is finally broken out and forced to deal with uh <clears throat> the world that he actually lives in and that uh yeah if you're if you're talking about like walking like the endings being important to a movie that like, i feel like it it absolutely nails the ending that it needs to in order to sort of finish to you know conclude the movie that you've been watching up until this point which is um everyone just trying to scream at him that like this is this is not the 50s um yeah of course it's not the 70s anymore but you know it uh <laughs> uh but yeah no i uh i agree on the ending um did you have any other uh any other sort of thoughts you wanted to cover for uh, Long Goodbye before we move on to our next movie? No, really just kind of um, just to, like hats off to everybody involved. Like I said, this is one of my favorite Elliot Gould performances. Um, as much as I love Bogart um, and, and he is, look, I make no bones about it. He is my favorite Marlowe. Elliot Gould is great as Marlowe. I, I, I love all of his kind of monologues talking about his cat. There's a great sequence in, in the beginning. It's, it's one of the, my favorite sequences in the film. His cat will only take a certain type of cat food. He can't get the cat food. <laughs> So he buys a different brand of cat food and tries to trick the cat. And it, it's so convoluted. He actually, without the cat looking, he like dumps the cat food in, into the old can of the original cat food and tries to play it off. It's such a, it's completely useless to the movie. It does nothing for the movie, but it does everything to sell you on Marlowe and on Elliot Gould as Marlowe. And the whole time he's talking to himself and just kind of mumbling. So to just hats off to the performance. I, I think Altman just knocked it out of the park and super huge kudos to Leigh Brackett. I mean, this is a woman who just one of the best screenwriters for this type of stuff. Like I said, she wrote The Big Sleep in 1946 with William Faulkner uh, for Howard Hawks to do Marlowe. So she knows Marlowe. Um, she also wrote another movie you didn't like as much, but we also covered on uh, Cinema Duel. She wrote Rio Bravo, which is my favorite John Wayne movie. Um, uh, she also wrote some crazy science fiction and some crazy murder mysteries. Um, since we've watched this, I've been trying to track down some of her books so I can start to read them. But uh, really just there's 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 so much to love about it. It's so shaggy. It's so loose, um, but it has some great performances and it really has a real fun story that kind of even if you don't have the buy in to Marlowe and to Noir in the 50s that someone like like me does watching this, um, it's still enough to kind of, you know, uh, perk you up and uh, find some real enjoyment. So I, just, that's all I really had to say about the movie and that I hope. John, that it showed you yet another side of the amazing talent that is Elliot Gould. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. I, uh, I will never turn. Uh, well, there was that one Bergman movie that I wasn't a big fan of that he was in, but, uh, no, I, I, <laughs> so, so I won't go so far as to say that there's never a bad, uh, Elliot Gould movie, but this was a very good one. And I appreciate you for, uh, uh for suggesting it. Um, if we want to talk about lay bracket, um, one of of course we mentioned it beforehand one of the uh um one of the where she shows up on my radar is being one of the uh the writers for the empire strikes back and of course uh the other more let's say associated writer with that movie is uh is lawrence kasdan um 
who is the director of our next movie. So why don't we talk about 1981's Body Heat? get the star wars stuff out of the way first there is for like for me part of why i picked this or why i wanted to start with watching this when i started my big homework project for this uh episode was just because it was directed by uh lawrence kasdan and i was like hey, it's the star wars guy let's i want to see what movie what his version of a noir movie would uh uh would look like um also his, and I'll his directorial ab- debut if i'm not mistaken yeah in fact he actually like I mean, he used basically the heat he got off of Empire Strikes Back to get this made. And not only that, I'm pretty sure that George uh, Lucas had some overseeing, like George Lucas basically had his back in making this movie, which if you're George Lucas in that time, basically allows this movie to get made, I suppose. Um, So there's like, it's not, it's as far as this is a movie that it was produced and existed the conditions that allowed it to exist actually have some tie into star wars but uh, and i'm a star wars fan but i think i don't i don't see there being otherwise a meaningful kind of like thematic connection to it other than maybe some like dialogue stuff like the the relationship the the dialogue between han and leia and empire strikes back was always like that was just great stuff i don't know if that has any sort of i don't know if he's drawing on noir stuff from there but i always like the dialogue between those two um and Probably you could give a lot of credit to that to Lawrence Kasdan, I would guess, right? Well, I think Kasdan, right? So think about him as a writer back and forth. He, um, When he is engaged, the banter that he creates between leads like that, so whether it's between Han or Leia, whether it's between William Hurt and uh, Kathleen Turner in this film, whether it's between Harrison Ford and Karen Allen in Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, he, he has a, a definite knack for the back and forth banter between the opposite sexes, which um, is is throughout his entire filmography, but especially in the early 80s, the guy was on fire when it came to dialogue like that. And that's definitely represented here. Oh, 100%. Uh, in fact... Um it actually gets in the it actually gets in the way of I think some of the the, the noir uh, things that I think this movie's trying to get to, but but in a way that's like it's it's a good problem to have when your dialogue is so good um, that you have trouble buying the lead protagonist as an idiot. Um, but yes, this is I, I think once having watched it a couple times, it really what really solidified my uh, pick for this as a as the one I wanted to talk about wasn't so much the, the the Star Wars connection, but more just the fact that this feels like when we're talking like if we're just boiling down neo noir, like trying to do a new version of the thing that exists beforehand, this feels close like um, there's obviously the the Chandler Marlowe connection uh, in the last movie that we talked about. But here this feels like they are trying to do that kind of movie but just updating the like without trying to like show how it's broken and we're going to pervert it because it's the 70s but like this just feels like they're trying to do that kind of heightened movie but without the <laughs> but with the sort of sensors and the haze code stuff taken away so they can yeah. just go as 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 hog wild uh as they want and i feel like th- this if we're talking about like a new version uh that of that old thing this 
this of all the stuff that we watch, this feels like it hits the closest. Um, it does the best job of like we're gonna need a new version of the old thing. Yeah, I could not agree with you more, uh, John. You, you, I, I think you nailed it in that that description. This is the exact opposite of what Altman's doing in The Long Goodbye. This is Kazdin loving noir so much. He's going to do a straight-up noir, but he's going to do the things that noir could never do because of the social mores of the time. Right, So he's going to supercharge it with sex. He's going to supercharge the dialogue. He's going to supercharge everything. But he's going to stick to the tenets of a true noir. Um, and, and I think that serves him incredibly well for his debut as a director in this film. Yeah. If i I, if this were my debut feature film, like, like, how could you, like, where could you go from there? Like how it, it feels, uh, I mean, obviously he had the, he had a very established career as a writer, like writing some of my favorite movies from my childhood. But like, if you're stepping up to the big game directing and coming out with this as your first swing at bat, like it, uh, the, <laughs> I know that there's a movie you're going to recommend, uh, later that, also feels like they're trying to amp up the sexuality but this one i feel like <laughs> it does so it, it 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 ramps up the sex uh in a way that is obvious and noticeable but like still doesn't tear the movie apart like it doesn't yeah. like completely uh blow up everything <laughs> in the process like it's just uh it's it's just completely just so confident and so like we're just going to move through this stuff and we're going to do so brazenly when it never feels like it loses control of like what it's supposed to be even as you um and again like <laughs> the the this i mean this let, let's let's actually pivot to talk for, for a second about uh double indemnity because this movie obviously shares uh a, a large sort of at least conceptual uh inspiration from from double indemnity um what i and i say that uh mostly having watched double indemnity afterwards for the first time and realizing okay like and seeing the sort of threads connecting but what i and maybe this is the maybe i think the one thing that maybe they do actually like i was surprised a that there was less it's more of a thematic idea than like strictly follow like paint by numbers it's it's not not a plot at 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 all it's the it's the idea of a guy who is too smart for his own good that he gets completely duped by a femme fatale. I mean, that's really where this draws the parallel with double indemnity. Yeah. And the, and I mean, and and for me, the noticing, if there is a thing that I think where it breaks substantially from it is, is in the ending, which again, spoiler alerts, um, Kathleen Turner, uh, as the femme fatale just completely wrecks and, ruins uh william hurt and just is she gets away with it like that's the that's the glorious ending is that he he figures it out but it's too late because he's in jail and she's off on an island uh drinking margaritas or whatever and i feel that's noir i mean that's noir again it is not noir is not the same as a mystery or a thriller where the hero prevails in the end this is he is utterly screwed at the end of this movie and that is just i mean if that's not true noir i i don't know what is well i mostly mentioned it just the ending up front mostly because the in double indemnity going back and watching it you no know, realizing okay this was a this served as an inspiration for for body heat that like body heat ends with the two the two leads killing each other like there is like 
if it's uh, if they're both compromised and they're both sort of in, within this relationship, they they take each other down. Um, and so we're so you can at least think of some kind of like I don't know Shakespearean justice where you know no bad guys ever prosper, but like here uh, in, in Body Heat, yeah, where she just straight up like she wins and just so completely wins and there's just the the um actually in, in i guess to compare it to the long goodbye it's that moment of like oh yeah this is just the the, the hero is completely broken by the end it's uh it's fairly it's fairly amazing yeah it, it, it's actually lighter because at least william hurt lives at the end whereas right fred mcmurray who is this is not an episode about double indemnity, but I love double indemnity out of all reason. But I mean, yeah, uh, he dies at the end, <laughs> you know, so does she, but so does he. It, it is the collapse. It, it, it is the ultimate kind of downward spiral and collapse of the protagonist by the movie's end. And um, to jump in just kind of briefly, I had never seen Body Heat before, so this was brand new to me. And Man, I don't know how you feel about it, John. We'll have to talk about it afterwards. But this, I loved this enough that this might go on my like, man, if we both love it, we may have to put it on that letterbox list. I, I loved it out of all reason. I was shocked at how much I enjoyed this movie for its first time from a, from a, from a screenwriter who his screenwriting chops kind of were unquestioned at this time for a directorial debut. This film looks amazing. The way that he utilizes color, the way that he follows his leads, the way that he films a conversation. I would never have guessed that this was a debut from a person who never directed before. Never would have guessed it. It's um, I am. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned that letterbox list because I was literally about to be like, okay, let's edit this out if if you don't feel the same way. But I was about to suggest to no. you the exact same thing, which is that we should put throw this up on our list along with Faces Places, Army of Shadows, Amadeus, all that fun stuff. So I think that serves as shelf uh, of fame for us. Yeah, this is a yeah, shelf, shelf of fame pick. This is absolutely a shelf. And and like and we'll 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 talk about the the sex part of this after, but like that's the, the for a movie to be this I mean, just let's just say it, erotic. It, w- it would not be the kind of movie that would just you would assume with my personality and where my bent is at that that would just sort of instantly body its way into a top films <laughs> list for me. It just it, it it wouldn't it wouldn't be an obvious choice. But the more I thought about, it, I was like, yeah, no, like this movie just absolutely rules uh, and is worthy of putting on that sort of uh, best of list for, for us for sure. So I'm glad that we agree. <laughs> we should probably, and I'll, and I'll leave this to you um, because it is so much of what makes this movie work is how wonderful the plot comes together. So why don't we just, if, if you want to, do you want to quickly summarize what this movie is about? Cause we absolutely. haven't talked about it yet. No, that's all right. Um, so, William Hurt plays a, a lawyer uh, named Ned Racine, and he is characterized pretty early on as being an inept lawyer. Like he's he's not uh, he's not like friendless, but everyone in his orbit seems to just constantly tease him about how uh, how sort of incompetent he is as a lawyer. Um, and, and and I think we hinted at this earlier. I think that. The only thing working possibly against this movie is the fact that Kasdan's dialogue is so good that you it makes you forget that William Hurt's supposed to be an idiot. 
um, that like they're so good at talking to each other um, and even and, like the people in his orbit, whether it's Ted Danson as his as his l- lawyer friend or, or, or the, any of the other people that he spends time around. The, the dialogue is so smart that you forget that like Ned Racine's actually an idiot. Um, but he finds his way to uh, he, he finds his way uh, sort of walking one day, uh, looks across and sees Kathleen Turner, um, uh, whose character I think is Maddie Walker. Um and she's she's a married lady and they they start flirting with each other again just great classic uh banter people who are you know uh flirting with each other you know the there's electricity in the air they uh they pretty quickly start uh, having an affair and in the first i'd say the first half of the movie there's just there's just a lot of sex and it's pretty like i i my goal in life just again as a personal choice is that with no condemnation to anyone else that i should never express any sexual opinions about anything it's not good and no one should hear them from me but you can't really talk about this movie without at least being mentioning the fact that william hart kathleen turner super hot in this movie is just absolutely ridiculous ridiculously Um, hot in this movie ridiculously hot and as the uh and as they start to develop their relate like it's they 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 can't tear themselves away from each other even when it's sort of it's a it's an illicit affair so they can't be seen together but they can't keep themselves apart so it's they're going into more reckless behavior until uh, eventually william hurts you know it's like well we have to clearly we have to plot and ki- to kill your husband so that we can be together um and so on and so forth the husband gets murdered uh eventually and uh i mean through and again i'm gonna breeze through the mechanics of how the plots works but it is very i should say the way that the plot works is actually very good um ultimately uh william hurt starts this the realization slowly like very slowly almost agonizingly slowly uh he starts to figure out that like maybe he might be in too deep and that maybe he may have potentially been set up but he but he can't quite as 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 the details of you know kathleen turner um uh there's there's stuff about her husband's will and how you know we she, she uh, ultimately the uh, Kathleen Turner ends up inheriting everything from her late husband and uh and that it's basically uh William Hurt's responsible for this happening even though in his mind he's he tried to set things differently but at t- by like he takes too long to figure it out because again he is characterized as an idiot but eventually realized that she planned this the whole time she sought him out because of his reputation as a shitty lawyer um and basically put all this together so that uh they could have a hot affair he would kill her husband and then she frames him for her murder and then she escapes while he goes to jail for it like it's it's the if i'm not doing the plot justice uh, apologies but it the way that once the once the reveal happens and all the threads pull together um and she has basically won the whole thing it is just so it's just so satisfying yeah and there's a so i'll i'll chime in on like one or two small pieces because um 
It's even better than how you described, because once he finds out that she set him up and it's not to for her murder, for his murder, for and we haven't even talked about the supporting performances, which we will. But her husband is played by Richard Crenna. If you've seen Richard Crenna in any movies, uh, First Blood, he's in Victory. He's in a ton of movies, but um, that's a hell of a combination. (laughs) um, But so. In a normal noir, like, yeah, so he finds out he's being set up for for the murder that he did, in fact, commit, you know, but he yeah. was going to try and get away with. But now he finds out that she's going to, you know, try and pin it on him for the murder. So that sets up a, a double cross scenario, which in probably one of my favorite moments of the film, even that double cross becomes another double cross and she gets away even better. And it's just, it's, 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 it's brilliant. And I, the the one thing that I will say is, and we've talked about this before about the dialogue and, uh, you had talked about before how like the one small problem is the dialogue so good. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to believe he's the idiot that he is, but I think what this movie does so brilliantly, I'll, I'll kind of frame it a little bit differently. The dialogue is so good. And because this is a film noir and you have to kind of take the, you're, 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 you're taking the lead from the protagonist, which is William Hurt as never seen. Um, throughout most of the movie, the dialogue is so good for him and he seems so smart because you're leading to believe that he's smart. It's not that he's a dumb lawyer. He's a sleazy lawyer. He's lazy. He doesn't care because what he cares about more than anything else is just sleeping with women and just having one night stands and just doing his job just good enough to just keep going, meeting the next person and sleeping with them in the incredible Florida heat. This movie takes place in Florida heat is a theme throughout the movie. It's called body heat. The heat in the weather is continuously bees, is, is, is cranked up. The sexual scenes are filled with sweat and just, and, and literal body heat. But this is one the, of the sweaty, like not, 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 in any, movie, not in any sort of metaphorical sense. In no, a literal this is sense, literally this is the, one, one of the, the sweatiest, sweatiest movies I've ever seen. Without a doubt. But I think the smart thing that Kazdan does is he, uh, Ned Racine is smart. He's as smart as he needs to be. And he needs to be smart enough to have you go along with him to think that this idiot's got it under control. And he's going to, he's going to, he's smart enough to figure out all all the ins and outs of this murder. Um, it's, it's, it's purposeful. It's just that she's smarter and you yeah. never the, let on how much smarter it is. It's not that he's dumb, although he is kind of dumb. He's smart. She's just so much smarter. And the, the one thing that I'll say is that this is Kathleen Turner. If it's not her debut film, it's her first, like she may have done some smaller things. This is her first kind of big feature, her first big lead. Um, she is amazing in the scenes where she is leading him on as a, as the femme fatale, as the sexual predator, as the, the praying mantis. Oh my God. Uh, we talked earlier. It, it's, uh, it's slightly uncomfortable how sexual she is in this film. She is phenomenal. Um, I wish she wasn't as stone-faced as she is all the time. There are moments where I'm just kind of like, it's so obvious that she's now putting on an act. Um, whereas with William Hurt, William Hurt is like, 
he is smooth and like he knows exactly what he's doing. And you feel this guy's smooth. He knows exactly what he's doing until he gets fucked. And when he gets screwed, there's one scene. I actually sent you a screenshot when I was watching it. He's in a police station. And there was a scene earlier on where uh, he and Kathleen Turner are engaging in some let's say oral pleasures and Kathleen Turner's young niece shows up and spots them. And it's a moment where, Oh my God, they're screwed. Someone knows about the illicit affair and it gets played off. But then later on he's in the police station and they're still in, they're still checking out the murder of the husband and they find out, you know, we have the niece here. She said she saw the wife with uh, some guy and you see the look on William Hurt's face, William Hurt's face, like it, just his expression is Academy Award worthy. <laughs> his face goes from, I'm going to get out of this to, oh my God, I am so screwed. What am I about to do? And that whole scene, the way that that scene plays out and the way that it works, it's, it's, it's tremendous. All of that is from his dialogue. All of that is from his performance to ensure that he's as smart as he needs to be until he's utterly screwed. And then it plays a little bit differently. I wish Kathleen Turner, and she can do it because in later films, she's brilliant. She's really good here. She does what she needs to do from like the sex bomb femme fatale perspective. I wish there were certain moments where she had the elasticity to kind of play around some of those other pieces like some of the other characters do. This movie is freaking front loaded with talent and it. One of the reasons I love it so much is, holy crap, I just saw a movie where Ted Danson is freaking phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> and I would not have expected that in 1981 when this movie came out. But holy crap, Ted Danson's great in this movie. <laughs> I mean, like the poster is uh, the poster is a sort of a, a closer a shot on William Hurt lying down with a, you know, smoking a cigarette. And then uh, Kathleen Turner in the background, it looks like she's just stand, stepping on him, which, yeah. of course, exactly. So, so in a movie with that kind of poster, being like let's talk about ted danson <laughs> it's just it, it's 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 surprising but yeah like he i mean he's great as sort of the the fellow friend lawyer slash like hey you're getting into trouble i can see you're getting into trouble let me try and like help you out here but also one of like has a little bit of that scumbag one of the boys energy i think he's the one that talks about william hurt being you know yeah. having quite the reputation with the ladies and actually being pretty good at, at getting women to sleep with him um but just sort of you know dancing and gliding his way through being a scummy lawyer is just like literally it, dancing and gliding because there's like no a no, weird, no that's like, not a metaphor yeah he's got Again, some weird tap dancing fetish he's always dancing in the movie but not only just him like um um I, I I had to look him up because I loved his performance so much. J.A. Preston as Oscar, he's the cop. So there's a triumphant of uh, friends. It's William Hurt, it's Ted Danson, as J.A. Preston. Um, the lawyer, the reporter, and the cop. Or the uh, prosecutor. Um, Ted Danson's a prosecutor. And then Oscar right. is the cop, and he's so good in the movie too. Just as the, hey, look, you're my friend and everything, and I love you, but you do some pretty shitty stuff please don't get caught because I am going to come out for you. And his role, small as it is, is uh, very good. But then even smaller than that, this is one of the earliest films that start, that had Mickey Rourke in it. 
And uh, this was the part I think I was telling you. Yeah. My wife was watching the second half with me and all of a sudden she looked up, she heard a voice and she's, she like her whole body kind of lit up and she was like, what, what is that? And then she saw, she's like, Oh my God, that's Mickey Rourke. Cause you think of Mickey Rourke now, Mickey Rourke now is not Mickey Rourke in 1981. No. <laughs> Mickey Rourke in 1981 is a magnet of charisma and attractiveness. He, he's almost and angelic. Charm. Like yeah. it is it is wild. Like he plays the the young tough who shows uh William Hurt how to make a bomb and yeah. stuff. But like you he he almost feels like there's some kind of weird like old style young movie star quality to him where you're just like i'm going to watch i mean and obviously mickey works like i'm only familiar with mickey work in the context of like he's coming back with stuff like the wrestler and yeah. and, and and what have it's, you but like if you've the, ever the, questioned why mickey rourke is famous watch his earlier work watch a guy who is i mean we we talked about like hey look there are some people in this movie that are so ridiculously hot and beautiful it hurts like Kathleen Turner in her earliest role this might be one of the most kind of like hot sexual performances ever at this time uh Mickey Rourke is maybe one of the most beautiful people I've ever seen and in the five minutes of screen time that he has on this movie he's magnetic i mean the dude can act and it, and if you look at more of his earlier films we may have to do a mickey work episode at, at some point the dude is an incredible actor he is charismatic he is naturalistic um he embodies the entire persona of whatever role he's playing at least back then and for the time he's on on the screen again playing against william hurt who thinks he knows all the answers it it, it just comes back to kasdan did no wrong on this movie, man. His dialogue is so purposeful. It's so smart. It makes everybody feel not only real, but it makes everybody feel like they're either, it makes them feel like they're at the top of their game until they're toppled. And Mickey yeah. Rourke has a similar piece where there's one episode where he sees him to your point where they make the bomb. And then William Hurt sees him later in jail. Like they're walking in and out of jail and there's like a brief exchange there. And Mickey Rourke has to play an entirely different side now of what's happened. And he's what tips William Hurt off to, oh, crap, I am screwed in this scenario. And it's brilliant. And I mean, per performances aside, all of that is in the way that Kazan wrote and shot the film. Yeah, I, I think if uh, I, I think where because I, I mentioning at the beginning, the, like the 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 comparison between the sharp dialogue and William Hurt's personality I think where I think what my initial when I was originally watching this for the first time my text to you went something along the lines of like I didn't understand why William Hurt was cast in this movie because that's not what I think of him as until the point where I remember that this is supposed to be a noir movie and he's supposed to get suckered. And then I, and then, cause you're right. right. Like when he, when he, those, ex, those moments of dread and expression, those puppy dog eyes where you just like realize just how fucked he is, is that's when it sold me on, like on him as being the guy in the movie. I was like, right. He's supposed to be taken in and, and be completely hoodwinked. But because the movie takes place from his perspective, it's, it, it makes, if you, if you're coming into this thinking like I'm going to watch a noir movie, then you're watching out for Kathleen Turner the whole time. But if you're, if you're, if you allow yourself to be bought into sort of 
his character and sort of take things from his perspective, which is what the movie does, then like it is a real blindside. Yeah. And he and he sells it so well. Just the like look of complete dread just washing over him as he sees it with with everyone else sort of closing in on him without realizing they're doing it and sort of putting the pieces together and him just realizing fuck this is going to lead to me and i can't escape it <laughs> oh he's so good in this yeah i i i think you perfectly nailed why he's so well cast in this film it's 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 li- yeah. it's literally for that yeah now it's time for our recommendation segment as usual. Uh, this time around, I have one that is on topic uh, and I warned you about so we could coordinate. And the other one was uh, uh, is going to be a bit of a surprise and is completely off topic. Uh, so the first one is uh, Blowout, uh, 1981 movie by Brian De Palma, uh, starring John Travolta. Um, it is... Uh, it's about John Travolta who plays a sound effects technician who just so happens to capture some random astray audio um, that potentially may uh, be evidence in proof of some kind of crime and conspiracy theory and all that fun stuff. Um, my The thing I really liked about it was the just like all the nerdy tech gear shit that is buried within this neo like noir mystery conspiracy thriller whatever you want to call it like i was like we're going to spend a lot of time in this movie that's about murder and conspiracies just like looking at at reels of sound and stuff (laughs) (laughs) i uh i was uh i was quite happy with that one um and then my second recommendation is a series of movies um the rebuild of Evangelion or Evangelion uh, series. Uh, those just came onto Amazon Prime. And uh, since we watched, uh, well, we've, we've alluded to, to uh, watching it uh, on the podcast in past episodes, but I think we watched it last year, this, the original series. And so I thought I would, uh, while my wife is uh, studying for various uh, school type things, uh, I thought I would uh, watch some anime shit and... Uh, it was uh, it was fun not having like the deep connections to the original series, but liking the original at least. Um, it was fun to sort of watch it in a new. It, it's it's like half re-edit and half remake in the sense that it goes off in some different directions uh, in the latter half uh, of the series. But uh, I uh, I had a good time with it, and it's easy. And like with most anime things, once it's accessible enough for me to watch it, that's usually a cue that, you know, you should watch it too. <laughs> well, I think accessible is the word for that, because actually, because you and I had talked about it um, over the weekend, I watched the first the first chapter of rebuilding. So it's four films. I watched the first film and I think accessible is the key word. It, it, it streamlines the original 24 or 26 episodes. I don't remember what it is. It, Something like that. It, 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 it streamlines it and it makes it a lot more kind of clear as to, Hey, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. These are the themes. It, it brings some of the later stuff in earlier, but it's essentially the same story. Like right down to, I was kind of like, I, I was talking to you about, it's weird to see a remake, that is just literally the same thing. Like, they didn't change the character designs. They didn't change the Evangelion designs. Everyone's pretty much the same. Um, 
but I am enjoying it. I'm probably going to keep watching uh, the, the four films until I get, I, I get to the end. And then similarly, um, just to tag on to your recommendations, I love Blowout. Uh, Blowout is one of my favorite De Palma movies. Um, and it really nicely segues into my recommendations, which will start with a De Palma film. Uh, so similar to you, I'm, 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 I'm going to stay, I'm probably going to just stay on topic because I did watch a lot of these films for our episode. So I think one of the things when you talk about De Palma and you talk about his obsessions as a filmmaker, one of his largest obsessions that's readily apparent whenever you watch a film is Hitchcock. Um, so even when he's doing neo-noir, which I guess ostensibly Blowout and my film are kind of neo-noir, I think of them more as kind of Hitchcockian thrillers. Um, so where Blowout kind of plays with the man who knew, knew too much and political assassination and what's going on, um, my pick is Body Double, which I'm not going to say is a great film, although I really enjoy it. It's, but to the point that you were, that we were talking about earlier, it's, it's Brian De Palma going, okay, look, I'm going to do Hitchcock's rear window, but I'm going to take out <laughs> everything that they couldn't do in the fifties. And I'm going to put it in here. I'm going to have porn. I'm going to have sex. I'm going to have crazy shit. I'm going to have, instead of a murder with like, just a, like a traditional murder, I'm going to have someone drilled through with a power drill and I'm going to film that. Um, it's completely over the top, but there's something stylistically about De Palma that I'm always drawn to. Um, and it plays a little bit with the notion of body doubles. Um, he, he got the idea originally, um, working with body doubles for, uh, for other movies and what's the life of a body double like. And that kind of set up the framework in his head for this type of movie. Mel Melanie Griffith's in it. Um, Craig Wasson is the uh, star of the movie. He's uh, kind of an actor who is jilted, has to go live someplace. Uh, one of his actor friends is going away and said, hey, I'm house-sitting. You can go in this amazing apartment. And hey, guess what? It's got a telescope that looks into this hot chick who strips every night. And of course, he keeps looking and then he starts to become infatuated with the woman. That woman may or may not be being followed. A murder may not uh, may or may not occur. And he's thrown into situation that is way above his head. So, I mean, it works as a noir in that place, but I think of it much more of like a Hitchcockian thriller than a true noir, but it's definitely fun to check out. Um, likewise, I'll throw a couple names out without going into, um, really big details. I rechecked out Chinatown, Jack Nicholson. It's a classic and that is very much a noir, a neo-noir, um, I also checked out going through the list here, Blood Simple by the Coen Brothers, uh, another fantastic one. Um, Mona Lisa, uh, Neil, an early Neil Jordan film with Bob Hoskins is a fantastic film if you have a chance to see it. But what I wanted to talk about instead of all those movies is one that I would ask you to stay away from. And in keeping with our Empire Strikes Back and Star Wars theme, I'm going to go with The Eyes of Laura Mars. Not so much as a recommendation, but as a recommendation to, hey, you're going to want to see this film. And the reason you're going to want to see the film is because of this description. It is um, Hollywood's attempt at emulating an Italian giallo. It is based on an original story by John Carpenter. It stars... Faye Dunaway uh, from Chinatown and Tommy Lee Jones. And it is directed by Irvin Kirshner, who uh, became more famous later on for directing The Empire Strikes Back, written by Lawrence Kasdan. Um, 
all of those things want you to see this movie, which is about a fashion photographer who does very controversial photography, who has a psychic link to see through the eyes of a serial killer who is killing people close to her. That sounds amazing. Brad Dourif is in this movie. <laughs> Raul Julia is in this movie. Man, I wish this movie was good. It's not that good. I know you want to see it. You're going to look at this movie. You're going to look it up and you're going to want to see it. Uh, and I'm going to tell you right now, go ahead and see it. But it is not a good movie. <laughs> so that's my recommendation for the episode, John. You, you, you've told me about this beforehand. And if it wasn't apparent, uh, I, I think I'm just going to say it again. Uh, I'm going to have, you know, sometimes you have to let kids make their own mistakes. You just be like, you know what? I can't, you shouldn't do this, but I'm not going to stop you. You just do what you're going to do. And then when it, when this all falls apart, come, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll fix it later. And I feel like this is one where I'm like, I, even if this is bad, I have to, you have to see I it. have to, I, I have to see it. Just, I, I can't not have, I, I can't not watch a movie with all of the, ingredients you just listed it's on the criterion channel i'm assuming for another couple of weeks so if you're a subscriber uh super easy to see um and do so at your own peril <laughs> yeah and i mean as for body double yeah like i i think i respect it more than i actually like it i mean the uh the the comment from de palma about uh deciding to you know having fought over censorship issues with uh scarface and deciding that like fuck you i'm gonna put even more sex i'm gonna put this fill this with as much sex as i possibly can uh and you deal with it like there's a there's a quality to that that i like even if i think it kind of derails the movie i think in, in spots but it's uh you know I, I respect the effort absolutely it's super audacious and it's super stylized but i would never say it's a it's the highest of the De Palma output. I mean, Blowout is, I think Blowout is a phenomenal movie any way you slice it. Um, I'll go to bat for a lot of his other films. Um, I love Dress to Kill, which is on the Criterion Collection, but I don't think is part of this. Um, but there's just something about how audacious and over-the-top Body Double is, how much it's De Palma kind of playing with Hitchcock and just gleefully sticking his middle finger up to Hollywood that that's what I enjoy about the movie even if the movie itself is not particularly great <laughs> yeah I think that's uh, yeah I, I I think you and I are on the same page about uh, yeah. about that one um well, I think that's probably going to wrap it up for us uh, this evening. Um, we haven't talked about it in a couple episodes, but I am still slow, slowly working my way through uh, the Agnes Varda series. I've got maybe about four uh, entries left, and hopefully, um, the one uh, the I just the, uh, today before recording, I watched uh, the Gleaners and I. So I'm uh, hoping to uh, have that in some kind of editable form, either before this goes up or shortly uh, a week or so thereafter. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, Chris, um, I'm going to spoil my thing uh, for you before writing it by saying it's basically the midpoint stylistically between Vagabond and Faces Places. Oh, um, I'm looking forward to it. Which is wild because those were the two movies we talked about in that episode. Yes. And then watching Gleaners and I being like, this is half Glean this is half Vagabond, half Faces Places. It's insane. I think I need um, to see that. Then. Th yeah, no, for sure. Uh, you watch it and you go, oh, f this is where Faces Places came from. Uh, it's it's pretty great. That's great. Um, is 
Is there anything you want to uh, plug before we wrap up today? I do. And it's it's our website because uh, I've been very lax in writing lately. I've been doing a little writing here and there for music, but nothing for film. But that is going to change in about three weeks because it is going to be the eighth annual Hooptober Marathon. And while typically I do all of my uh, full length reviews on Letterboxd, and then I do kind of summaries on nine circles. I will continue to do summaries on nine circles, but because we have a film website now, uh, it makes way more sense to do the fil- the full reviews on our website. So, uh, real quick, uh, Hooptober is uh, starting September 15th. It runs till Halloween. And basically, it's a marathon uh, hosted by uh, a gentleman who goes by El Cinemonster on Twitter. And every year, basically, you have to watch 31 films, write and review them in that time period. But there are rules. This to what films you can pick. So there are certain criteria that the films have to match. I've been doing it uh, since year one, so this will be my eighth time. So expect to see those reviews cropping up on um, Cinema Duel starting, I believe, September 15th is when we go live. So you'll see uh, a bunch of horror coming very soon. Hell yes. I could not be uh, more excited. Um, Chris, it's uh, it's it's always fun to to have these chats, and I'm glad we were able to inaugurate a new uh, film onto our list. I'm go- I, like as soon as we wrap up the Zoom call, I'm going to be getting onto Letterbox. I'm to, excited uh, to, to to update the list. So it's uh, it's very exciting for me, and it's good to uh, hear that your trop- your tropical storm was only a tropical storm and not a hurricane. And uh, I wish you the best in, in all things. And uh, for anyone listening, take care of yourselves, and we will catch you next time. Yep, stay safe, everyone. Be well, and uh, see you later. Bye.